In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Christ is in our midst. He is I greet you with the fast again. Sorry. After Thanksgiving, we're back on track. We're on the third Sunday in preparation for Nativity. Where your conscience fails you, here I am to remind you. <laughs> it's part of my role. I hope that you all had a blessed Thanksgiving and meaningful, meaningful time with your friends and family and even a little time of reflection on what it means to be thankful. We celebrated the great Thanksgiving, of course. On Thursday morning, we had the Divine Liturgy here. It was beautiful, a good way to start Thanksgiving Day. We also celebrated on Friday. And, you know, when we celebrate the liturgy which, in which we have the great Thanksgiving, the Eucharist, we remember what is at the core of our life of gratitude when, when we hear the beautiful proclamation, Thine own of thine own we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all. Today's homily is going to be an interesting one. A little fun, maybe. I think I've been mulling over a little bit of a title for it to try to get your attention. Um, so I was thinking about moralistic therapeutic deism and the chocolate Jesus. Did that get your attention? Moralistic therapeutic deism and the chocolate Jesus. Usually I'm, draw, I'm drawing from resources that lived within, you know, writers that lived within the first millennium, oftentimes. But today I'm going to present some insight from um, some contemporary writers. Hopefully some insight that will inspire us to continually return to God, the God-inspiring living tradition of the church. One of the things I've been thinking about is in this day and age... Power, power struggle, politics and influence and so on. We live in a time of false unions and, in, and real divisions. False unions and real divisions. And I've been reflecting on this much lately in light of international discussions regarding church unity, concerns about the misappropriation of power and influence in order to gain control. And this is a powerful temptation among people in leadership of all kinds to use their authority or their influence in order to control and to manipulate, to bring about false union and real division. But this is why in the church we have to remember and always understand that Christ is the singular, the one and the only head of the body, which is his church. Christ is the head, and he cannot be divided. So I start with that. Christ is the head, and he cannot be divided. No single person, personality, principle, or idea arbitrates our unity. It's Christ himself. Therefore, unity, preservation of union in Christ... I think is worth dying for. 
because true love is worth living for. And in reaction, as I've said a few times already, in reaction to nebulous claims that love is love, well, if love is love, love is what you define it, but our response is that God is love, and love is of God. God is love. So true love is only of Him. Today's epistle reading was really powerful, and so it inclined me to discuss this topic today. St. Paul said some things like, Christ is our peace who's made us both one. Where there were two, where there was division, there's now one. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. That's a powerful claim. And I continually want to emphasize that the basis of our union is our reconciliation in Christ. This topic of reconciliation and unity reminded me of the words of St. Paul in his letter to second, the second letter to the Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as, through, as though God were pleasing through, pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The basis of our common life in Christ is our co-reconciliation with Christ. To be in Christ, then, to be in Christ is to be in communion with one another. And this is an essential characteristic of Christianity that has been lost in all of the separations and divisions and schisms and everything. That to be in Christ is to be in communion with one another. To belong to Christ means to belong to one another. And therefore, as you know, we categorically reject the idea of some kind of personal salvation. You remember the old saying, one Christian is no Christian. Today's epistle lesson bears witness to this with incisive conviction. That Christ has accomplished something real. That he's revealed that we're to be fellow citizens of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure is joined together. And grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. Was St. Paul talking about these four walls and this ceiling? Do you think? No. No, he wasn't talking about... He was talking about each of us becoming like planks and beams in the household of God. That we become the very temple of the Holy Spirit together. 
And it's this powerful conviction that has drawn many people into the very real and living sacramental experiential life of orthodoxy. In the day and age of the conceptual, many people are drawn into the very real experience of the life of Christ that you find in orthodoxy, in which we quite literally experience this communion with one another. So part of my question is, if I'm positing that this is what we're missing, real communion, then why aren't more people drawn to such an experience of faith? I actually think many would be, but there is a certain phenomenon that has been clouding the minds of many, and I feel it's creep, even in my own, even in my own thought, in my own life. The simplistic phenomenon, a non-committal, well-intentioned, shallow philosophy, referred to as moralistic, therapeutic deism. And I'll explain what it means. You don't have to remember all the technical terms. But when I give you the the description of what it is, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. Because it's so pervasive. There was a national study of youth and religion carried out. Culminating in a book that came out in 2005, I believe. And it expressed the findings of common beliefs among American youth. They came to these conclusions. The majority of the people interviewed believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on the earth. So there is a deity. So there's deism. So God who put things into motion. That God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. You could probably add the things in the Bible you don't like, forget about them, as long as you're nice. That the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Does this sound familiar? Sounds so familiar and so tempting. That God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to solve a problem. And lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. Those are the five main points of, that came out of this study. Does this sound familiar to you at all? I see a couple of head nods, yeah. And I think it's a tempting set of ideals. Limiting goodness to acting in a way that's generally morally acceptable. An approach that barely gives a nod to God. Because when you barely give a nod to God, God doesn't demand much of you. And the authors of the text, actually reporting on the study, they state that it views God as something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. Who would want that? One author commenting similarly in a book called Almost Christian, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church, 
The author has written, the problem does not seem to be that the churches are teaching young people badly. I think this is really insightful. The problem doesn't seem to be that the churches are teaching young people badly, but that we're doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what, it, what we really believe, what we really believe, namely that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people. And she goes on to say that if churches practice moralistic therapeutic deism in the name of Christianity, if we practice this simplistic approach, then just getting them to church more is not the solution. It could make things worse. A more faithful church is the solution. I think that's really insightful. Studying this popular thought among young people. Just going to church more, plugging them in, getting them involved, is not solving the problem. It actually could be enhancing the problem. It could be enhancing the trivialization of our faith in the appropriation of a very thin understanding of who God is. A more faithful church is the solution. Well, and I think we have the, we offer that solution, don't we? That's one of the, one of the reasons that statement by not, someone who's not an Orthodox Christian resonated with me so um, profoundly. How beautiful and insightful. The solution to show this, to, excuse me, the solution to this shallow mentality isn't simply going to church, but being a more faithful church. I would say that this is what we have to offer in a way that no other version of Christianity can. And we're not simply a more faithful church, but we are the church. Faithful to the deep knowledge and experience that life in Christ is real that God is not distant or individualized or superficialized, I think that we quickly come to realize that this kind of God isn't a God at all. If we devolved into demanding nothing of ourselves other than to simply be nice people, then we no longer need the incarnate God. We no longer need the God who united divinity to humanity to reveal to us our true dignity. What we end up with, in the words of one 20th century American author, a God without wrath that brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Or to use Father Thomas Hopko's twist on that, He says, now we have a deity without majesty. Bring in humanoids without dignity into lifestyles without accountability to the God or goddess of your choice without tragedy. And what that leaves us with then is not a Jesus of flesh and blood, but as one musician ironically said, 
a chocolate Jesus. In his ironic song, he said, commenting on, I think, his observance of popular religion, I don't need to go to church on Sunday. I just stroll down and get on my knees before the candy store. It's got to be a chocolate Jesus to keep me satisfied. Huria told me it might be good to remind you that you shouldn't have a chocolate Jesus in your Pasca basket, by the way. When we go down this path, we're left with nothing more than than the saccharine sweetness of a faith that's no longer real. It is temporarily satisfying. That's why it's so tempting. But it's no longer real or concrete and faithful. And it's no surprise that so many struggle with experiencing a true sense of belonging then. Just how they like the flavor of, excuse me, just, yeah, just how they like the flavor of chocolate. They like the flavor of chocolate, but it's not enough to make as the basis of one's diet. Neither is the idea of a God who demands nothing deeper of us other than to simply be nice, a God worth worshiping. That's not a God worth worshiping or living for, let alone dying for. If he is real, and we boldly proclaim that he is, of course, then we offer no less than a full solution to the human predicament. To become a new creation in Christ, and to enter deeply into the church, which is his very body, It does demand something of us. It demands everything of us, and that's why we need it. We need the real Jesus, the flesh and blood one who was born in the cave in Bethlehem, who established the church as the bastion of his very presence on earth. When we see this, we will understand that we do belong, that what we have is most precious, the pearl of great price the most awesome and beautiful life, albeit radically countercultural, to a people lost and confused, and now having found Christ, and continually finding Him in and through our life in the church, we hear again the words of St. Paul from the day's reading. You are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into it for a dwelling place of God and the Spirit. Let it be so so very real for us in this little holy community. Let us understand that we so belong to Christ that we belong to one another, uniting us to the one who cannot be divided, in whom all things live and move and have their being. Amen.